0: let's head over to the book of Revelation. If you did not get the notes, they're right back by the back door, or somebody be so kind as to go and pick some up and walk through the room and hand them out. That'd be great. Otherwise, let's do this. While you're turning to the book of Revelation, let's just get our brains working this morning. Name a soda people like to drink. Pepsi, Dr. Pepper. Presca Seven Up. Here's what they said in the survey: Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi, Diet Coke, and Coca Cola was one. Name something many people would love to live next to. The beach. Golf course. Christian neighbors. That's not going to be up here. This is a this is a family feud audience. Okay. Any place else? Chick fil A. I. I would take that one. Here we go. They would like to live next to a school, a celebrity's home, a dance hall or bar, a shopping district, a park. Which one's number one? Swimming area beach. I don't know where the church is on this one, but I'm biased. Here we go. Name something people buy with credit rather than cash. Car. House. House. Groceries. (laughs) Here's what they said. Food, appliances, furniture, tickets, gas, cars, and number one was clothes. No house. No house. Okay. Here, first thing you would do if you won a million dollars. Pay what? Pay your tie. Oh, we would like that. Okay. (laughs) Quit your job? What's that? buy a car, pay off, your bills. pay off your bills. Here's what they said. Quit the job. I was surprised just two. Okay. pay off your bills, go on a shopping spree, take a long vacation, buy a car. Number one was buy a house. Okay, let's, let's think where we were last week. Give me a reason or a, bio, a support from the scriptures for the view of the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Give me a Bible reason that what we teach, believe, that the rapture is the next thing to happen before the tribulation starts. Give me something. We talked about this last week. Encourage my heart. Remember one thing. Okay. What's that? It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. What did you, what, Kevin, you were saying? The elders Revelation 4, the elders representing the church, are in heaven before the tribulation starts in chapter 6. What else? Okay, the idea of the comfort that comes, and that's the one I didn't put up here. The idea right before he says that we're not, he says comfort one another, we are not appointed unto wrath. The wrath. Um, And so the comfort aspect of we don't have to live in that time period. Any other reasons? Okay, Revelation 3:10: I will save you out of the time of trouble that should be worldwide. Any others? Second, Thessalonians 2 says, "Before the uh, tribulation starts, before the man of sin, who is his Antichrist, is revealed, something has to be taken away. That which holds back sin. Okay, we understand the Holy Spirit with us. As well, we said that the tribulation is a time period. We're going to get this more this morning. Tribulation is a time period for the Jews. Brighton is in heaven in Revelation 19. No mention of the church at all. During the tribulation passages of chapter 6 through chapter 18, the idea that there's there's need of new witnesses. Remember, how many witnesses does he pick? Okay, there's going to be two prophets... 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe, and that is not Jehovah Witnesses, um, the, the, the group today. Um, there's going to be the idea that you already mentioned all these things. Uh, we wanted to get into a study. Now, if you're joining with us, here's where we've been. We've been talking about the idea of the book of Revelation, we've been walking through it from the beginning, but we jumped over chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3, as he's writing this information, it clearly states in there that it is written to the seven churches, the ones that are listed in this region. And so in these seven churches that he's writing to, he has a personal note to each one of them, and that makes up chapters 2 and 3. We were studying chapter 4, which is the beginning of the prophecies. He says, come up hither, takes John to heaven, and he says, I will show you the things which shall come hereafter. That begins future events in chapter 4. He talks about in chapter uh, chapter 4 and 5, he talks about then looking around, and he sees what's going on in heaven. The centerpiece of what is in heaven is what? What's the first thing he talks about? A throne. Who's sitting upon it? God the Father. Okay. And then he describes there's a rainbow surrounding the throne. There's also other creatures around the throne. There's four beasts. There's 24 elders. We talked about who they represent, The, the church. The 24 elders are worshiping and they give something to the throne sitter. They cast their crowns, okay? And then we talked about how the throne sitter in chapter 5, he has a scroll in his hand. And he, they call out, who is worthy to take the scroll? And John sees nobody responding. And John thinks, oh no, nobody can take this scroll and take control of the, the future events. And John starts to cry and weep. And all of a sudden the angel says, a mighty angel says, behold the lamb, the lion. And so then that person comes forth who we understand clearly to be Jesus Christ. Steps forward, takes the scroll. And all of heaven, how do they respond when he takes the scroll? Worthy is the lamb. And they start praising because now somebody is able to take care of him, bring to completion all of God's, the rest of God's plan to bring the earth and all the creation to the ultimate redemption and eternity, which starts with opening the scrolls, we get judgments. Okay, they are part of this process. And he says in this, these scrolls, as he opens them, that the scrolls now start introducing what we are understanding to be the seven seals' judgments in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, I heard, as it were, noise of thunder. The four beasts call out, come and see. And then we get a white horse. Then we get another horse that comes in in, in verse 4. And we get the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. Okay, right in this section. We want to study this. I'm not trying to put it off. But I want us to really, I want you to really understand, to interpret this, and to appreciate Scripture, I want you to do something with me, okay? We are going to be talking about these seven sealed judgments, which then lead to the next two series of judgments, the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, and talk about Antichrist coming and all those things. We're going to get into it. But I want us to make sure that we start off with everybody having a clear understanding that the book of revelation is not you know, is not a prophecy standing alone it is built on a staircase of prophecies and so we said already several weeks ago to study this book you want to be looking at the text and saying what does the passage say and observe the passage look for what's there we get caught up too often with what's not there Okay, look at what's there, interpretation, understand that. It's just like any other book. There's a lot of symbolism, allegories, just like the way you and I speak. And we want to make sure that we understand how does it fit with other scripture. And that's where I want to take the next couple weeks. And I want to, uh, you know, and I hope I'm not boring you, but it is pivotal. It is critical that you understand of prophecies that were previously given. And so the keystone prophecy that the book of Revelation is going to expand upon and explain is found in Daniel chapter 9. Go to the book of Daniel, and this is the first major prophecy of future events that is given in the Old Testament. And so to understand it, we need to make sure we understand the context of what is given in Daniel chapter 9, where we read these these words that he gives in prophetic form. He says this in verse 24 of Daniel 9, "...seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city." to the finished and the transgressions to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy know therefore and understand from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the prince shall be 7 weeks and 3 score and 2 weeks And the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself." And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be as a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate." And you go and say, okay, what's he talking about? This is really critical to understanding all of the future prophecies given after the book of Daniel. So let's back up. Let's understand this passage. In the Old Testament, God made many different comments about Sabbath days and Sabbath years. What's Sabbath mean? What's the idea of a Sabbath? It's a day of rest. When did God initiate it? creation week. Okay. What did God do? On the seventh day, he rested. Okay. And so he set a pattern. I know that people have tried to change the pattern. For instance, the Bolshevik revolution, they try to change the average week to 10 days. Will that work? No, it's contrary to the natural law that God put into all creation, the seven-day cycle. And so with that in mind, God, when he gave the commandments to the Jewish people, he demanded that they have one day of rest the Sabbath day, and he gave this in the law. And so it it became part of the Jewish culture, and and actually it became part of many different cultures, uh, that there was the one day in seven. But the Sabbath day became very important in their time. In fact, according to the book of Leviticus, not only was there to be a day of rest, but every seventh year, what was supposed to happen? After six years, the land was to lie dormant for one year. This is called the what? Okay, it's the Sabbath year. Okay, this is Old Testament. And so he's saying, okay, every seven years, leave the ground fallow. Okay, just don't do it. And you and I would respond by saying, well, wait a minute, if we don't farm for a year, what would be the concern? How are we going to eat the next year? Okay, how are we going to do it? And God promised to do what? he would provide enough of a bumper crop that you can get by if you're faithful with this. And then not only did he have a Sabbath year every seventh year, but what else did he add to it? Okay, after every group of seven. Okay, so now we in Leviticus he says after seven groups of seven or after every 49 year, this was going to be a time where not only do we let the ground sit, okay, but we also forgive all debts. And, and, you know, as far as anything, you know, indentured people's credit, things of that, it was all going to be forgiven. And the land was supposed to return to... The the family or the clan that was originally supposed to... Their family was to have that area of Bethlehem, for instance, tribe of Judah, uh, Benjamin. And so God said, and and people's response is the right way. But if we do this, what about the monies that we might lose? What about the ground laying dormant for two years? And again, God promised, if you observe this, I will... I'll provide okay and so understand that this every this every 50 year cycle was called the what year jubilee year okay so this was this was initiated all the way bef- with Moses all the way before king david so israel becomes a nation and what happens is they fail to observe the Sabbath, the Sabbath laws and God had warned them. If you fail to observe, I will chasten you. This, you've got to do this economically, physically. This is part of your worship is you follow the Sabbath years and he warned them. So what, we're, what we know is the Sabbath laws were important to God. They were economic, national security. This was their way to keep their economy going. Okay. Do, do people in the United States wonder how to get the, the economy going? Yes? yes? No? Yes. Okay. And it's like, okay, well, if we do this, if we raise the interest, then we'll stop inflation. And it's, it's all this cyclical thing. God told the Jews, if you observe this, I will maintain your financial stability as a nation. Again, this isn't for the United States. This is for the Jews. And so he gave these laws and told them, therefore, it should have been important to the Jews. They should have observed this for national security, for prosperity. Did they? No. We go to the book of Chronicles, if you want to turn there and and just verify it. But in the book of Chronicles, we learn that the Jews did not observe Sabbath years for 500 years. They didn't observe it. From the time that they became a nation, Okay, when they went into the land and then they, get, they consolidated under Saul and David and Solomon, they've not been doing this. They have not been watching the every seven years, let's let the land be fallow. They weren't doing the Jubilee years. They just didn't do it because, you want to guess what any reasons may have been? Okay, greed, fear of finances. They didn't want to be that, or whatever their reasons were disobedience even when they had revival they didn't do it they so you look at that and you go okay so god looked at their history and basically they missed how many different sabbath years if you take a rough estimate here okay sabbath years not the jubilee years they, they basically missed 70 of them is what they did not observe And so, and I'm using round figures here for the 500 years. Thus the Jews owed God 70 Sabbath years that they didn't let his land go the way he just laid quiet, the way he told them to. And so God told them that what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the 70 years of fallow, of quietness in the land. I'm going to get it it out of your hide. And the way I'm going to do it, God said, I'm going to send in a a Gentile nation. The Gentile nation will invade. They will wipe you out and remove you out of the land. And my land will stay quiet now for 70 years that you didn't let it. So God is getting it from them. Um, His way, what does that tell you about God? Okay, God is serious about his word. And so what, it, what happens is we, um, we read that he told them in Jeremiah's prophecy that Jerusalem would be totally destroyed, the people would be taken away, and then it started during Jeremiah's years. 605 begins the first invasion. The Babylonians did not destroy Jerusalem right away, but what did they do? In 605. They came in, they put a puppet king in place, and they wanted us all to obey them. Let's say we were there at the time. So, what did they take from us besides taxes? What did they take from us to try to keep us as obedient subject servants? They took hostages. Who would you take as hostage? What, what part of the people? You would take kids who were basically in the the strata of those who were in authority, okay? Therefore, if they took, you're in authority. They took your kids, what's the fear? If I rebel, if I stir up a rebellion, they're going to kill my kids. And so they took a number of the boys, and they took them captive. There still became rebellion, And still submitting to God's chastisement, which God told them, I'm going to chasten you. They didn't submit. They rebelled. They tried to resist against it. So there's a second invasion. The second invasion, as we give you the date, happens. And they still rebel. There's a third invasion. In the third invasion, in 586, Jerusalem is totally annihilated. Some of the people had already been taken previously in the first and then the second invasion, hostages first, then more of the nobility was taken as hostages, and then in the third invasion, they basically took all the people, the few who were left, they ran down into Egypt. So after 586, the land is definitely, definitely not being, being operated. Nobody's living there for a period of time. But it starts in 605 when they they don't they they get invaded, and they some of their kids are taken away. So with that in mind, what happens is we come to the book of Daniel. Okay, which famous Jewish prophet prophet was taken as one of the hostages? Daniel. How? Uh, let's about how old was he when he was taken as captive? Probably about that sixteen, fifteen, sixteen years old. He's taken away as one of the captives. Was he good, godly team? How do you know that? He refuses, well, that's, that's uh, you said bow? Is that what you said? Okay. Um, in the bowing is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the statue. Daniel refuses something else. To eat the food of the king because it goes against the... The law of their food. So Daniel, as a 16-year-old, without parents, without anybody around, he says, I can't eat the food that the king's providing me. And um, so therefore, I want to eat the food that is kosher food. And the the man in charge agrees to let him eat what he chooses. And Daniel does what compared to the other kids? Okay, he shows physical um, uh, excellence. Okay, And so Daniel then uh, has a skill, even as a youngster, Daniel has a skill that is very rare. Do anybody remember what his skill is? Interpret. He can interpret dreams. Okay, He's not fully aware of it at the moment, but it becomes very apparent in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 2, he is still a teenager, young man. He's being trained in Babylonian ways. And as a hostage, they're going to use them and train them to become political, political administrators. And so he's there as a hostage. He's trying to follow the law in an ungodly society. And the king is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. What does he dream about? There's a large statue, and he has this dream of this huge statue. And as he talks about it, he says, I want to know what this dream is about. And it terrified him, because in the event of this, the dream, the statue gets destroyed. And so he comes, and he says to all of his wise men, tell me the interpretation of my dream. And their response is... Tell us the dream. And he says, No, I'm not going to tell you the dream because I want to know if you're going to tell the truth, if you can understand it. You tell me what I dreamt and what it means. Otherwise, I'm going to kill you. Okay? Well, that, that's a pretty good motive, motivation. And it's not that they, he's forgotten it, but he's testing their abilities. Okay? He doesn't know the interpretation, but he remembers the dream. And so they come, and Daniel is part of the wise men's society. Where we get, in the New Testament, we get that idea of the wise men from the East. This is where where they're culturally based in the Old Testament. And so Daniel's part of that group, and if the king's going to kill the group, he's going to wipe them all out, which means Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could be wiped out too. And so Daniel bides some time. He says to the Lord, you know, give me the dream. And God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And so Daniel's the only one who can interpret it. The statue, as he's giving the interpretation, the statue represents what? Different kingdoms. Okay? It represents Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings throughout history. You know, in a generic, you know, very broad view. And so what happened in this dream, do you remember how it ended? What happened to the statue? How is it destroyed? There's a stone that comes flying from heaven. It hits the statue and destroys the statue into dust. And then what does the stone that's laying there, what does the stone do? It grows... Into a mountain. Okay, and so Daniel tells him, he says, King, this is what it is. It's different kingdoms. The stone from heaven is going to come and it's going to destroy human kingdoms. This stone that grows into a mountain and takes over the earth is actually, okay, it's representative of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, when he comes, what is he going to set up? His kingdom, it's going to replace all of those human kingdoms, and it's going to become worldwide. And so Daniel tells him that there's going to be coming a kingdom of God from heaven. He doesn't say it's Jesus Christ. He just says the rock represents God establishing his kingdom. And we tell you all this because here's the point. Daniel understands that God is going to set up a kingdom one day here on earth. Now, with that in mind, Daniel 9. Daniel is reading in his devotions. And he is living in the year of 537, right around there, okay, that Daniel is living. He's been taken captive in 605. He's been living in in Babylon for many years. He is now an old man. Almost 70 years years has passed by, so he's in his mid-80s. And he's reading in his devotions. And as he's reading in the, in the passage, he knows what his history has been. They have been in captivity for 68 years. According to his devotions that he reads, they were supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. What, what immediately would come to your mind if you're reading the passage? Oh, we got two years to go. We got two years left in captivity. And then what? And then what? Now remember, Daniel has been told that God's going to eventually destroy the kingdoms on earth and set up his his own kingdom. Keep this in mind. Daniel is looking for the old kingdom. Has Daniel seen kingdoms fall already? Yeah. Daniel, during his 68 years there, he saw that Babylon got wiped out by... The Persians, okay. He has seen some things happen that there's been destruction that's happening, and Daniel's getting excited. That wait a minute, what could happen pretty soon? Let me rephrase this. What what do we look forward to? The return, the return of Christ. When we hear of anything in the Middle East, what do we think? Is it is it, is it this week? it it just kind of hastens the thought of, when's he coming? When's he coming? So Daniel is seeing this, and Daniel's understanding that the captivity is almost done. And so Daniel naturally wonders this one thought, you know, what's next? Will God now rescue the Jews from the captivity? And since we're his people, is this the beginning of his kingdom? And so he's asking the legitimate question, and he says to the Lord, God, please give me an answer. What's next? What's next? What's going to happen in the prophecies? What's the next events for us? And God sends the angel Gabriel, and the angel comes and gives him the information that we just read. Daniel, he says, listen, Daniel, he said... At the beginning, verse 23, of your supplications and commandments, I came forth to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon who? What's your Bible read? Thy people and upon... the Who's he talking to or about? He's talking to Daniel. What's he saying? There are still 70 weeks determined bef- uh, uh, for you and your people. So let's, let's, let's dissect chapter 9, because this is really important to understanding chapter 6 and following, the book of Revelation. The prophecy is dealing with the Jews. In fact, the 70 weeks are Jewish time period. It's still part of Old Testament Okay? Because the Old Testament basically, God's going to deal with the Jews until, what did God do? He turned from the Jews to the Gentiles. And the church then replaced that ministry that was all Jewish-oriented. And that happens in the book of Acts. But he says, okay, Daniel, I still have a plan for your people. I haven't given up on them. This is important. Remember, they're in captivity. The Jews, there's hardly anybody in the promised land. And so what happens is the only ones in the promised land are basically renegades, lions, and wild beasts. And, uh, you know, some of the Arab tribes. And so the Jews, for the most part, are living in Babylon. They're in captivity. They have been acclimated. They have been there now for almost two generations. And some of them still want to go back, but others are going to be more settled in that land because that's where they grew up. And so they've been under the discipline of God, and God makes it clear, I'm not done with you. I still have a plan for you. Seventy weeks are determined. Per this prophecy, the kingdom is not going to come yet until after the 70 weeks that have been determined. The reason that we say that these 70 weeks have to occur before the kingdom is watch the phrases that he uses here in verse 24. Verse 24. He is describing something, 70 more weeks must come before, okay, basically to finish the transgression or to put an end to all sin, to make an end of the sins, to make reconciliation or redemption or recovery, atonement for the iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up or to bring to completion the visions and the prophecy, to anoint the most holy what singular event is he talking about? What's he? He's saying seventy weeks until this thing happens, and you look at it and go, okay, to make a to close up sin where sin is no longer abundant, to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's talking about the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Okay, so 70, 70 weeks are still having to happen before I introduce my kingdom upon this earth. Before Messiah is going to be anointed, the king of the earth. And so you, you understand, he's saying there's a time period, and then the kingdom. So Daniel, who is anxious for it, he's being told it's not coming at the end of the next two years. There's still another 70 weeks. That brings us to this question. What's he referring to, weeks? Weeks. Literally in the Hebrew, it's seven sevens, okay? Or seventy sevens is the idea. He says, okay, what does he mean by the sevens, the weeks as the English interprets it? It's years. It's years. How do we know that? Because in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is the 70th week, the last week, the last period of seven years, he describes that period in the book of Revelation, and he says that the first half, the second half... They're made up of 1,260 days, or he makes it clear 42 months. If you take 1,260 days and 42 months, that's three and a half years. So when you put all the prophecies together, he's talking about 70 weeks or 77s, literally. He's talking 490 years are determined. And they're going to be literal years because when he gets into the book of Revelation and describes and gives the timetable of the final uh, 70th uh, week, he makes it very clear, it's years. And so what we have is Daniel, 490 years before the kingdom comes, at least, when, when, uh, when we start this countdown. And he basically divides it into three phases. He says the 70 weeks or 490 years are divided into what he calls seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. Or if you put it in the terms of the words, literally, he has the idea of 70 sevens, 62 sevens, or one seven. And he makes these are going to be done in consecutive fashion. So he goes on. He says it's going to start with the commandment to restore Jerusalem. We read that. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember at the moment that Daniel is hearing this, what is Jerusalem? It's rubble. It's totally, there's, there's no Jerusalem. Okay? There's, there's nobody living there. The first time the Jews go there is basically they're starting in the book of Ezra. Okay, and that's years after Daniel is is getting some of this information. And he includes, and this is interesting, this is important for you to understand. And he says, to restore and rebuild, the street shall be built again, and the wall. The street literally is the marketplace. It's not like, okay, it's Main Street. That's the best way I can describe it. When the term that he uses for the street shall be built again is... The main street, which implies that Jerusalem will become prosperous. And it's going to even have what about it? There's going to be a rebuilding of the wall. So it's going to be a fortress town. It's going to be a rebuilt capital that has industry. Or uh, That's that's too modern. Um, It's going to have prosperity. So from rubble, Jerusalem is going to come back. And it's going to come back strong. And so he's given this prediction. It's okay from the commandment to go and start this. He says there's going to be 490 years. And he says in that, in that period of time, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And as they're rebuilding, they're going to have problems rebuilding. It's going to be done in troublesome times. So the decree that's going to, is going to start the first phase of seven years. And you and I have to pause and say, okay, did any of this come to pass? After the 70 weeks were done, was there uh, the 70 years in captivity at the end of the next two years that Daniel is living, is there a decree saying Jews go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem? This is Old Testament now. Was there any decree? Yes. Okay. Okay. Did it actually happen? Okay, in the Old Testament, there are three decrees that are given. There is one that comes by Cyrus, the one that comes by Darius, and one by Artaxerxes, and they allow different groups of people to go back at different times to, to rebuild. Um, did the people go back and start rebuilding? They did. What was the first building they started to rebuild? The temple okay? And when they rebuilt the temple, what did the people do? The old men who were there and saw the rebuilt temple, they cry. Why? It, it's, it, the, 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 it wasn't going to, you know, was this something that they would see in their lifetime, okay? That, so that's interesting. But they remember it's not as beautiful as Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was one of the ancient, seven ancient wonders of the world, this temple doesn't, it pales in comparison, but they've got a temple. And so when, when they went back, do you remember any of the prophets that were involved in the, in the uh, rebuilding? I mentioned one already. Who's, who's the first group that went back? The first prophet begins with E. Ezra takes a group back. Then who's the next one that comes several years later? He's a cupbearer for the king, and he leads a group of Jews back to rebuild it. Nehemiah. Okay. And his focus is on rebuilding the walls. Did they have any problems while they were trying to rebuild? Yeah. 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 Nehemiah was threatened. And there's the group of people that lived north of them that didn't want them to rebuild. Do you remember what those groups of people came to be called? Samaritans. The Samaritans, the ones who basically came in and reoccupied the land and were half-breed Jews, descendants of the few that were left behind, along with the local Arab tribes, and they became to settle that area. and They didn't want the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem, and they were opposed to it, and they didn't want to lose their control of their land, and did that, did that animosity continue all the way into the New Testament? Absolutely. How did the Jews think about the Samaritans when Jesus comes? Not good. Not good. Because they have an ancient conflict going back to this time of rebuilding. Did they rebuild the city? Yeah. Did they get the walls rebuilt? Yeah. Did they, were they prosperous? Yeah. By the time of Christ, is Jerusalem up and running again? Ah, Yeah, it's, it's a major city in the Middle East at that time in the Roman Empire. So they did it in troublesome times. So then he says, after that, that time period, there's going to be a decree, there's going to be the 49 years, and then following the 49 years, there's going to be another 62 years, or another 434 years, which brings us to a grand total of 483 years. He says, after from the decree to the end of these 483 years, and then something's going to happen. Okay, Did you catch that? He said... Uh, uh, to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven, threescore, and two weeks. At the end of the four hundred thirty-eighty-three years, Messiah shall come. And Messiah will not only come, but what's going to happen? After those 62 weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Okay, so let's, let's examine that. Messiah will come, okay, After 483 years, did that happen? Did Messiah come? Yes, Yes. okay. How does it fit into the 483 years predicted? Well, you have to go back and say, which decree? Which decree? If it's the first decree that you can go back. They weren't allowed to do a whole lot of building, but they were allowed to go back. So then Jesus would come after 483 years. In other words, if that's the first decree and we take the 483 years, it's around 55 B.C. Did Jesus come after 55 B.C.? Yes. Yes, he came after 55 B.C. Correct? Okay. Jesus was born about what year? Three or four BC. Ha- Can't be before four BC. Because, why can't it be before four BC? Herod dies in four BC. Okay, Herod, the one who tried to kill Jesus as an infant, he dies in four BC. And Jesus could be up to how old when Herod gives the command? Up to here. So Jesus was probably born then. Five six BC, we don't know exactly, okay. But the calendar is off. Just leave it at that. Our calendar is off by a few years. But God, God knows His timetable. So, um, so Jesus came after 55 BC. Let's just, for the sake of our discussion, five BC. Yeah, that that fits. What about the next one? The next one that says uh, 520 would take us to 37 BC. Did Jesus come after 37 B.C.? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Here's your problem one. If we take the decree of Artaxerxes, that takes us up to 26 B.C. Did Jesus come after 26 B.C.? Yes. He was born... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, this is wrong. It's A.D., A.D. The last one is A.D. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I couldn't figure out why you were hesitating and not, not questioning. Okay, that's my mistake. 26 A.D. Okay, A.D. Correct the notes. Okay, 26 A.D. Did Jesus come after 26 A.D.? What did they mean by Come. Are they talking his birth? His public beginning of his ministry? Okay. Are they talking his presentation to the Jewish people? Okay. If, if, if it's a third decree, it's got to be right in this time period. Okay. I don't know. But any one of those decrees fits into this prophecy that after the 483 years, the Messiah will come, okay? And then he's going to be cut off, but not for himself. What's that mean? He's cut off, but not for himself. What's... He's going to die, okay? Not for his crimes he has done for us. The word cut off, by the way, means, um, what's the word I want to use? It means slaughtered in a violent way. Was Jesus violently killed? Okay, okay, so did that prophecy actually happen? Did that, that when Messiah showed up that people rejected him? Okay, so those prophecies, so far, all these prophecies are fitting. Okay, they're fitting. Now, don't think American. American Western thought, we think everything has to be boom, 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 chronological. I mean, you know, what did we do next, like in the next one minute? There's the possibility, there's the, uh, there's the reality that in this prophecy, God has put gaps of time. Okay, the reason I say that is because what he adds here, watch what he adds. He says the city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. What city? Jerusalem, okay? What sanctuary? The temple. After Jesus came and died, was the city and the temple wiped out totally? When? Wait a minute, when did Jesus die? Yeah, let's let's take let's take 3233. Okay, roughly Okay, if he died, then 70 AD, it was destroyed. Did God put a gap of time in, in the counting? Yes, yes. Would we put gaps of time in if we were? No, we would want to be more concise. But God is saying, okay, after 483, there's going to be events occurring They don't have to occur right right immediately after one another, but they are going to occur. The city is going to be destroyed. It happened in 70 AD that the city was destroyed, annihilated. And then he says, after those 483 years, after the city is destroyed, he says, sometime after that, I'm going to begin the final seven years before the kingdom comes. And so he's made it very clear at the end of that final seven years, then the kingdom, God's kingdom will come to this earth. God's built-in gaps. Keep this in mind. Gaps are built into this prophecy, which is no problem because there could have been gaps between the arrival of Messiah and uh, that are given between the, uh, the decree and um, the arrival of Messiah as we give you those three dates. There's clearly gaps given between his death and Jerusalem being destroyed. There's clearly 1,900-plus gaps if we take from when the city was destroyed and we're still here and the final seven weeks hasn't started. So there's gaps in this, which is okay. God can do it. But the key isn't the, we always think the key is when. We are very when oriented. Um, we, are, we are prone to watch our, clock, our, our, our clocks, our phones, whatever you want to we're prone we're time oriented yes okay when we say we're starting church at 10:30 what do you look for 10:30 10:30 if i say i'm going to preach 20 minutes and i never say that if i say i'm going to preach 20 minutes what would you do you would look at 20 minutes and you would start counting from then how long i'm preaching Okay, we're very time-conscious. That's our culture. We're very date-oriented. Um, you know, we, are, we are big on knowing the, his, the details. Are other countries in our world t- as time-oriented as we are? No. If you go to some of the foreign, foreign areas and they say church is going to be Sunday morning at 10.30. What's that? 11 would be a really good start. It's basically whenever, when everybody's ready. And you and I, we would go nuts. Okay, we've got other plans. We've got other things going. You know, we want to be out of here by 1140, as somebody told me, so they can get to the restaurant early. Okay. okay that's us. Does that mean it's wrong? No. But other cultures are more relation or, e- or event, not time, but event or relation-oriented. So when you study these prophecies, stop thinking the American Western way and understand the big concern is not necessarily boom, boom, boom. The timing, though it's there. The big concern is the event. What happened? He died. Jerusalem was destroyed. And sometime after that, which drives us nuts prophecy-wise. Because we want to name the time. We want to know when is he coming. Not just that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very... It's, 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 when we stay prophecy, we've you've just got to back off a little bit and say this is what the text says. Yeah, you know, And it's giving us this information which is totally accurate sometimes after. So if I were going to chart this, okay to just keep it in my mind, okay, here's what I would be doing. I'd be saying, okay, seven weeks or how many years? What's the first grouping represent? How many years? Okay, 49. What's the next group? I'll help you out. It's too much math. Okay. So brings us to how many in that whole section? 483 years. Okay. And so we have 483 years. It starts with the decree to rebuild, Our question is, we don't know which decree. But was there a decree to rebuild? As he said. Yes? Okay. So, and then he says, then Messiah will arrive. We don't know what he meant by arrive. His birth, his public uh, baptism, his coming into the temple, and they are crying, Hosanna to the highest, and a few days later they kill him. But we know that it did happen. Whichever one of those, yeah, you know, until the when the Messiah is going to be cut off. During this 483 years, we have this. We have the city and the walls and the temple were rebuilt, as predicted. We know this. It was done during troublesome times, as predicted. We know this, that the Jews would eventually flourish again, even in the marketplace with this protection. That happened. So we go a little bit further and we say, okay, after the 483 years, Messiah comes. And again, how did that coming, which one was it? Messiah is cut off. Okay. And Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Did that all happen? Okay. There's something else I didn't put in here, okay, where he talks about, and at the end of verse 26. Uh, The end thereof shall be as a flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. In other words, what he's saying, for your people, after the city is cut off, what will life be like for the Jews? It's going to be horrible. You're going to have war. You're going to have all kinds of desolations. The Jews would suffer a flood of trials. After 70 AD, did the Jews go through periods of genocide? Persecution, yes, a lot. The only nation, the only nation in human history, that has survived as a people outside of a landmass for generations, hundreds of years. No other people did that. Why is it? They're God's people. They were. The, they were a chosen nation. Then we know there's this gap of time between some of these events. How much gap of time after the 70 AD? We know it's 1,953 years and counting. Then, he says, the 70th week starts. The final seven years. Which the book of Revelation, which Jesus called the what period? Jesus used this term twice in Matthew 24. He calls the 70th week, we, call, we use the same term all the time, the tribulation. It's the tribulation, he called it tribulation and the great tribulation in Matthew 24. So before we get into De- Ra- Revelation 6, understand this is, this is critical. The reason I'm doing all this, this one thought, just make sure, the tribulation is for the Jews. It's not for the church. That final seven years is not determined upon us. It is a Jewish period. It's, uh, it's Old Testament. It's when God is dealing with the Jews as a nation. It's not for us. We have no business being there. The church is removed. And when people are basically converting during that time, they're going to be part of that na- national Jewish group. It's a Jewish time period. Now, before we wind up, what would you walk away with from this? What does this show you about God? Anything that we just talked about. What does it tell you about God? It's all in his time. time. What else? He has a plan. plan. What else? He's just. Okay. Okay. Preparation-wise? Anything else that tells you about God? What about God's word? What does this teach you about God's Word? It's true. It's accurate. He never fa- oh, there is so much, again, when we walk away, you and I can be confident in these types of things. If God can handle international affairs, he can handle ours, right? If he knows international timetable, does he know our timetable? Okay, so all those circumstances, as God's people, okay, we're not Jews, but as God's people, can we take this, even if circumstances look horrible, does God still care for us and provide for us? Yes. We can talk about God's word. We can pray like Daniel did with confidence. We can be confident in the Bible. It is certain. It has the answers, not all that we want, but all that we need about the future And God's word is going to happen. The positive as well as the negative. God is God. God. Let's worship him this morning as this God who knows best. Okay, thanks guys.